0: Our scripture reading today comes from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seen.
1: It's good to be together. Thanks so much for being here, guys. Um, super excited to get everything launched. Just let me say a couple of preliminary words about where we're headed over the next several months. We'll be here twice a month. We'll be at Wild Goose for Lectio Divina once a month. And then we're going to be, in February, launching some small community formation groups, groups of four to six people, to dig deeper into our life together. And so, as always, uh, the website is the place for you to, to check that out. Um, if you have any questions about anything, there's a spot for you to send us a note there on the website. We encourage you to reach out. Uh, we have a lot of moving pieces right now as we as we relaunch, so uh, no question is gonna be uh, pushed away. We're really wanting some feedback from folks. So, so in uh, 2010, a photographer in New York City, uh, Brandon Stanton, began taking pictures of people all throughout New York City with the goal of developing sort of a book of 10,000 New Yorkers, creating an exhaustive catalog of people in the city. And this project began to shift into a storytelling project, and Brandon began to ask the story of the people that he photographed, and he began to interview his subjects and grab quotes, and, and he would pair those quotes with their picture, and taken together, these portraits and captions became the subject of a vibrant and viral blog and the Human of New, Humans of New York project sort of took off. How many of you have seen the Humans of New York project? Okay, like most of you are into this. It now has over 20 million followers on social media and it provides like a worldwide audience with daily glimpses into the lives of strangers in New York City. And one of the stories reads like this. It's a photo of a man resting against a baby grand piano on wheels that he pulls into central park every single weekend and he says this i was a mess when i was born my face was super red i wouldn't stop screaming i peed all over the nurses even as a child i could tell that the world sucked life didn't seem to be about enjoying beautiful things or feeling amazing emotions it was play this game now have dinner now work on this and things didn't seem much better for adults it made me anxious. I was a really anxious kid, he says. There were a lot of migraines. There was a lot of crying, a lot of anger. And the only thing that calmed me down was listening to music. I used to hide behind the couch with a boom box. And there was nobody telling me that I shouldn't feel a certain way. It was the only time when my emotions had first priority. I choose what music I want to play. I get to make my own schedule. I've been out here every Saturday and Sunday for 15 years. He's talking about playing the piano in Central Park. I've got a pretty good system going. I keep the piano in a nearby storage unit. I can get set up in less than an hour. As long as there's a clear blue sky and it's above freezing, I'll be out here. I think street performance is the purest form of connection. There's no velvet rope or assigned seating or two drink minimum. You just hear something you like and you walk over there. And if you like it enough, maybe you'll stick around for a song or two. These past couple of years have been tough, he says. I'm only playing for a fraction of the people. It's hard to make money. It's hard to feel the same sense of connection. But for each person who still walks over and stops for a minute, I like to think that I took a little bit of misery from their lives. For so long, the world was a miserable place for me. So I want you to hold on to this story a little bit in your hands. We might come back to it in a little bit. We've been making our way through a series that we've begun that will take us through until Easter Sunday. And the series is trying to answer a really profound and big question about what does it mean to be a human being? And what do the scriptures have to say about this? And the question that I wanna look at this morning is why is being a human so hard? Why is it so hard to be a human being? Why is it so hard to grow into becoming a human being? How many of you have like asked that question at some point in your life? Like why is it so, why is this so hard? Maybe if you haven't asked that question, I don't know where you've been in the past couple of years, but um, I think for most people the, the last couple of years have felt really hard and the story of this man in New York City trying to make sense of the world by pushing a baby grand piano into Central Park to play music is no doubt a spectacular story. It's also a really normal story. That's why people follow the Humans of New York project is because they love to see the very normal people's lives sort of cascading through their life. It reminds them of how hard Uh, Life actually is and I think it just makes people feel a little bit better to watch that unfold We get so tired of all of the celebrity stuff It's a normal story. It's a story like like most of our stories moms and dads changing diapers for a half a decade men and women working less than ideal jobs to provide their for their family immigrants leaving the only place that they know some little neighborhood in Honduras with five kids and two suitcases to try to get away from the violence and they try to make their way through to a safer place. Everyone in this room has a story in their lives that is filled with a sleepless night of anxiety or a visit to a hospital to be by the bedside of someone that you love or walking through the tail end of a marriage that feels like it's falling apart. We have these stories of our lives feeling really challenging. Why is being and becoming a human being so difficult? And what sense do the scriptures try to make of it? So the image that I'm asking us to lean into over the next several months uh, is this image of you and I and everyone else being in a, a womb of formation. I want everyone to imagine themselves in a womb. Make it your, your safe space. I, I don't actually remember much about the womb. Um, anybody remember anything about the womb? What I hear about the, roo- about the womb and every sort of cultural reference and and all of the places that it shows up in poetry is that it's meant to signify like a really safe place. It's meant to be a place where everything that you have is provided and, it, and you're like in this like jello mold of a thing that is taking care of you. And um, It's meant to indicate safety and security and warmth and perhaps a better metaphor for how it actually feels to be in this world and to become a human being is more like a gauntlet or a sea storm or a wildfire or perhaps a little bit more on the nose, a dumpster fire. And listen, I know it's the middle of winter, the days are dark, the light is low, We probably all need a little vitamin D. I may sound a little negative right now. I know that there are also really beautiful metaphors to describe what life is like. I know that sometimes life feels like a table set before me in the presence of friends, and we're like feasting. That's how life sometimes feels. Or gust of wind at our back. How many of you have felt a season of your life where it just feels like the wind is blowing you? towards the thing that you wish for it to be there are moments when we're feeling like we're walking in a lush green valley but the reality is is that most of us also feel that there are seasons of our life where we're walking through a valley of the shadow of death most stories in fact have a very similar arc to them anybody big movie watcher i know michael is michael and i used to go to movies decades ago all of the time most most stories actually have a very similar arc to them this is what american professor of comparative literature joseph campbell uh like clued us into many years ago if you guys have ever heard of the concept of a hero's journey uh, most epic stories, including the stories of our own life, in almost every book and movie is a story about a man or a woman who goes through great suffering, reaches an experience that there's something beyond the world, and brings some goodness back from another world into our world to share with all of humanity. This is the basic narrative of everything from Star Wars to Spider-Man. No cheers for Spider-Man? I mean... Okay, yeah, all right. So this is the story arc of almost every ancient myth. You'll find this in Shakespeare and you'll find this in the Sunday comics. This is how life works. This is the arc of the story. And the reason that these are the kinds of stories that we tell is because collectively as a human race, we're trying to make sense of why is it so hard And what do I do with all of this weakness I feel and all of this struggle that I have? We're trying to tell stories to make sense of that thing that we know. The suffering and the anxiety and the conflicts and the pandemics and the fights that we have with extended family members over leftover ham sandwiches at the holidays. We're trying to make sense of all of this. We need it to to mean something, don't we? And so listen, I really want to be able to stick with the womb metaphor, even though I know that that's not our experience of life. And the reason I want to stick with the womb metaphor is because it's a metaphor that one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, whose teaching and writing helped create our creeds in the fourth century, uh, begins to paint for us this idea that we are in the womb. So I want to hang on to this, but I think if I'm going to hang on to this as a metaphor and ask us to lean into it, I think I'm going to need to do a little work um, because it does feel a little bit more like a sea storm than it does an actual womb. So let me just recap a little bit of the framework, and then we're going to move into the passage for this morning. So at the very beginning, the creation narrative story gives us a picture of God saying this. He says, let us make a human. And let that human rule over all of creation. And then the story goes on to tell us that God took mud from the ground and made it into clay and formed a human being. And that's a really important part of the story that I also want you to hang on to because it shows up in the passage that we're going to read this morning. The same early church father Irenaeus who alludes to the fact that we're in a womb being formed into a human said that the work of God is the fashioning of a human being. The fashioning of a human being. That everything else in creation, he simply spoke into existence, but not the human. The human being cannot simply be spoken into existence. The formation of a human takes time and deliberation. How many of you notice that there are changes to who you are versus who you were 10 years ago. Anybody notice that? You are being fashioned over time. This is the picture that Irenaeus says that we should think about. God's job is forming us and shaping us. And then what we read in the Gospel of John, Jesus stands before Pilate, the one who's overseeing Jesus's trial and he stands before the crowd in a purple robe and a crown of thorns a purple robe signifies royalty and a crown signifies kingship and so what the the gospel writer john begins to paint at this scene is jesus as the king royalty in his robe a crown on his on his head at this point he's covered in blood by being scourged with a whip He's standing there in a royal purple robe that is now stained with blood and a crown of thorns that is piercing his scalp. And Pontius Pilate, before sending him off to death, reaches his hands towards Jesus and says, Behold the human being. And then a couple scenes later, Jesus from the cross says, It is finished. And the way that John begins to tell the narrative and the way that early church fathers told the story is that what gets finished is the formation and the crafting of a human being. This is the moment when the first human is finished. The work of God, the work of fashioning a human is finished in this moment. The way that we become a human is that we learn how to love in this way. And we become human through learning how to love. This is the framework of the womb. This is what we're going to walk with from now until Easter, friends. And so I'm I'm going to re-narrate this story over and over and over again because I want it to shape the way we understand the scriptures. How do we learn to love in the way that's demonstrated on the cross in a world that is full of so much suffering? How do we do that? So our, our scripture text for this morning is this beautiful story of Jesus healing a man that's born blind. If you have a Bible, by the way, I know that we're mostly tech-oriented kind of culture. You probably have a Bible on your phone. If you have a Bible, um, here I am, I'm about to say you should bring it, and I forgot mine. So <laughs> I would love for folks to begin maybe bringing your Bible. If you have a Bible, we'd love to encourage Bible reading. If you don't have a Bible at home, I'd love to buy you one. So just tell me, and I'll buy you a Bible. Does that sound good? It may not be leather, but I'd be happy to buy you a Bible. So John chapter, uh, beginning beginning in verse 9 here, it says this, and you can read it here with me. He says, as he went along, he saw a man born uh, blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? He says neither this man nor his parents sinned," said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as his day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming, when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, put it on the man's eyes, and he said, "Go." Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. So friends, I'm going to leave the scripture up here. Um, You're welcome to glance back at it from time to time. But I want to look at this story briefly from three perspectives. The perspective of the disciples, the perspective of Jesus, and then the cosmic perspective. If we were to have a camera and pan the lens out, you guys know how when, uh, you know, you get video from space and the planet looks so small. There's a cosmic perspective to this passage or a theological perspective that's going on, and I want to look at that perspective as well. So first, the perspective from the disciples. The disciples have been with Jesus walking through Jerusalem, and they're leaving the temple courts, and they're making their way to another part of the city, and they see a blind man, and they know that he would have been blind from birth because they would have passed this man, if not daily, while they made their way through the city. They would have been passing this man probably for decades. They know this person. He's sitting outside of the temple gates. He's, he's begging. He's trying to figure out how to survive. And uh, this was more or less the life of someone with a disability in the ancient world. It often meant a death sentence simply from from hunger or violence. Somebody would rob you, take advantage of you. But if you could survive, you survived on the graciousness and the the gifts of other people. And in the ancient world, this kind of weakness or blemish or illness, uh, it was seen as a punishment for sin. Everybody's framework would have been that something is wrong with this person or Or his parents must have sinned in some terrible way for their child to have been born blind. And so here's a blind man, blind from birth, they say. And the disciples point out the man and they say, teacher, what do you think? Is it this guy's fault or is it his parents' fault? And you have to remember, by the way, that this man would have also been excluded from the place of worship. He would not have been allowed into the temple. He would never have been in the presence of people worshiping like we're about to do. Um, He would never have been invited into the presence of God. He would have been on the outskirts along with lame beggars and prostitutes. He would have been on the outskirts with people uh, with, with some sort of skin condition. Any visible defect of this way would have been considered a sign that this person was a sinner, or that this person's parents weren't worthy of having them being brought into the temple. And so the disciples would have spent their whole lives believing that every lame beggar and every blind man in the darkness and every person with a skin condition or suffering in some way was because of something that they or their parents had done. Does this make sense? And as much as we would want to distance ourselves from this way of thinking, as much as we would want to think that, that we're enlightened people that don't actually fall into these sort of traps, uh, of of the uneducated peasants or the fishermen that would they would fall into in the first century we often fall into the same trap we're almost always looking for a place to pin our pain or our blame on something we see weakness in the world and we often assume that this is the mistake of someone it has to be right we see somebody falling apart or we see somebody really struggling in life or if you don't have a, a, an appropriate context for how poverty and addiction work, you'll, you'll meet somebody on the streets and your first thought is generally, I wonder what they did to make this happen. We look at the ways that even our own weaknesses begin to shift out on, onto our kids. I, I don't know if you guys, how many of you are parents, but one of the interesting things uh, about being a parent, and my kids are in the room, um, is that you begin to notice things in your own kids that you're like, yeah, like, I think they got that from me. Oh, man, I don't know. I don't know what I think about that. And we begin to, to try to place blame in some, certain places, and sometimes we get caught up in that. But here's the thing about this that I want to draw out if the disciples were caught up in a system of thinking that that meant that every blemish like this and every weakness of the body of all of those beggars meant that somebody had sinned that kind of thinking has a way of leaking and mirroring back to the way that one thinks about oneself if weakness in someone else is that person's fault or something someone else did to them and this is a punishment for being bad then weakness and brokenness in me and being less than I'm supposed to, well, it must be my fault or someone else's. Do you see how those two things go together? The way that we think about others and our search to blame others for their weakness or their faults is just a mirror for how we often think about ourselves as well. And so I can't show up with that brokenness. I've got to hide the weakness because the moment we're talking about weakness, we're also going to get to blame and I don't want to start that process. We get caught up into this same thinking. So friends, this is just a little bit of an aside, but if you find yourself caught in this cycle of looking at the weakness of other people and wondering if there is blame to be given, I would, I would invite you to pause a little. Because the truth is, is that what's also probably happening is you're treating yourself with that same level of judgment. Does that make sense? I'm not asking for any public confessions, but c- can you guys relate to this a little bit? Those two things are related. And it causes us to keep all of the weakness and the pain locked on the inside and we try to hide the limp, we try to pretend that our eyes are seeing eyes when they actually feel blind, and we get stuck either in this cycle of shame where we blame ourselves, or in a cycle of anger where we blame other people. Was it me or someone else? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And the disciples watched Jesus as he bent down, he picked up a bunch of dirt, he spat in it, he made mud with his hands, and then he plastered it over the guy's eyes. And the disciples, I'm sure, are now just standing there wondering what is going on. Jesus sends the guy away, still blind by the way, Now he's stumbling through the city still blind with mud and spit in his eyes trying to find the appropriate pool to go wash off. What's happening? Super weird story, right? Okay, let's tell it again from Jesus's perspective. Jesus has probably been with his disciples and in the city of Jerusalem for the past week, we learn in John chapter seven that it's the feast of the booths or tabernacles. And so people from all of the outskirts of Jerusalem would have flooded into Jerusalem. They would have been camped outside. The city would have been bustling and moving crammed into there. And Jesus, just a few verses earlier, has said some things that caused the religious leaders of the day to want to pick up stones and throw at him. And so we catch him and he's moving out of the temple. He's trying to escape the violence that is about to be done to him. And his disciples see this blind man and they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was be born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Friends, Jesus gives us an entirely different perspective. He basically says, you're asking the wrong question. He says the question isn't about blame. The question in this moment is to wonder what God might do in the midst of this given that this is the condition this weakness this illness this pain and suffering what will god do with it and friends we have to be really careful with a text like this uh, this particular text because there's this little clause in the original language um, that is often misrepresented here and you may have read this passage of scripture and you've walked away thinking wait a second Is Jesus saying that God made this person blind so that God can display his glory? I mean, that's an awful lot of suffering for one person to go through in order for God to get a little bit more glory. And if that's the kind of God that God is, I don't want anything to do with him. So let me just get into the weeds just a tiny bit here. There's this little word in the Greek right here. It's three letters that can either mean in order that, which signifies cause, or it can mean resulting in, signifying just the outcome. Okay, so uh, there are very few places in the scripture where a translation or a misinterpretation can sort of throw you for a loop. This is one of the places. It's the difference between I drove really fast and ran off the road on purpose. Or I drove really fast and I ran off the road as a consequence of driving fast, even though I didn't mean to. Does that make sense? It's a huge distinction. So friends, let me just say something about about being a human being. About pain and about suffering and about why it's so hard. Your mother was not supposed to die so young. Your child is not supposed to have that disease. Your father is not supposed to be struggling with crippling anxiety. Your family was not supposed to lose that house. The people living in poverty and going hungry are not supposed to be without. The tsunami or the wildfire or the pandemic, these are not punishments from God. This is not God teaching us a lesson. The addiction that you fell into, it's not punishment for something that you've done wrong. None of these things happened at the hand of God in order to teach you a lesson or serve some higher purpose. But given that these things do happen and that this is the world that we live in, the question that we're invited to ask is to wonder what God is going to do in the midst of this. What is God going to do? And the answer that Jesus seems to give in this interaction is that God takes our weakness and our insecurity and our woundedness and our fragility and the suffering of our body and the heartache of the broken marriage and he treats it as a space that has been made for him to fill up. Imagine all of that weakness that you feel and the suffering and the missed expectations as a giant chasm that's been carved out on the inside of you and what Jesus is saying is I'm going to fill it with the presence of God. Every spot of weakness in our life is a space for God's presence to fill his glory in. And so let me close with the cosmic, the theological perspective. At the very beginning of the Genesis story, God placed the human in the garden and said, all that I have belongs to you. Everything here I've created for you. But you can't just take everything. There's this one thing, this one tree over here that I don't want you to take the tree, the fruit from. And here's why. Unless there is something that's a little bit lacking in you, you will never have need of me. And this is the way, says God, that I have set this relationship up. Is that in order to receive love, you have to have need. In order to be filled up, you have to have a spot that needs to be filled. And so everything in this garden is, is for you as a gift, but you can't take from that one tree. And when that first relationship was broken, when the first human in the room of creation said, Nah, no thanks. I'll get it myself. The weakness and the limitation of being a human was rejected. How many of you reject your weakness and your limitation? And since that very moment, God has been orienting us over and over and inviting us back into a posture where we see that our weakness, our humble state, Is part of us being a human being so that God can fill it and so Jesus reaches down and he picks up dirt and he spits in it to make mud and he works it in his hands to make clay and he forms it over the man's eyes as a prophetic act of recreation he's pulling back on the Genesis narrative And he says, what is lacking in you is meant to be filled by me. What is lacking in you is meant to be filled by me and by my presence. God filled a human body with his presence and glory, and in the act of incarnation, coming as a human being, coming into this world, he filled a human body with his presence, and he's demonstrating by that what he is doing with us. God is going to fill all of the weakness of your body with his presence from now until the time it's complete. If we were in another church tradition, somebody would have said amen to that and that's okay. We don't need to be those kind of people. But that's the story, guys, that we're invited into in the scriptures. The way the Apostle Paul says it is this, is that we have this treasure in earthen broken clay pot vessels so that when any strength comes out of you, everyone will know that it's the glory of God and not of yourself. I want to invite the worship team to come up. And I want to invite you just to, to sit, maybe open up your hands. I want to ask you to consider What is the weakness of your life right now? Where do you feel weak? Where do you feel broken? And could you, in our time together in worship, could you just ask God to fill that with his presence and with his glory? So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come. We pray, God, that you would seal tight the, the word into our hearts right now. God, would you take it deep in within us? We ask, God, that even in this moment, you would pick up dirt and spit in it and just put it in the spot in our life that needs to be filled. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, let's worship together.